Someone once said that if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. That's a law of propaganda often attributed to the Nazi Joseph Goebbels. When Jesus rose from the dead, the government authorities came up with some talking points and created a new narrative that became the official Roman government position. They kept repeating the lie, his disciples stole his body. Today, You and I are faced with a constant downpour of lies that emanates from our culture, beating into the minds of people, and has a tendency to make many people believe these lies, lies that tell us, do what makes you happy, lies about sexuality, lies about gender and marriage and the sanctity of life. In the city of Corinth, where Paul is writing this epistle that we've been studying on Sunday mornings, there was a constant downpour of lies from their culture, beating into the minds, and that culture denied any possibility of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, when Paul preached in another Greek city, the city of Athens, and declared the fact of Christ's resurrection, some of the listeners actually laughed at him that somebody would rise from the dead. And most Greek philosophers considered the human body was a prison and the sooner we'd be done with it was the better. Well, this skeptical attitude in the culture filtered into the church and some of the people that were in the church of Corinth didn't believe in a resurrection of the body. They believed in the resurrection of Christ, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. So in chapter 15, Paul says, we're going to rain some truth down upon you so that it would sink into your understanding and it would change your opinions. So first of all, I want you to notice in 1 Corinthians 15, let me read some verses in chapter, chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, and some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, 
And we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if, if in fact that he, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you were still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Father, I thank you for your word. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians and rained the truth down upon him, Father, today, rain the truth of the gospel and the resurrection down upon our parched soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, the facts of the resurrection. How many of you remember that old TV show, Dragnet? You must be as old as I am. <laughs> Remember Sergeant Joe Friday, played by Jack Webb? We used to have a Jack Webb that came to church here. It's a different one, though. It's a different one. Anyway, you know, it was uh, in the 1950s and 60s, it was uh, uh, Jack Webb or uh, Joe Friday would come with his deadpan expression and staccato speech. Friday enthralled the public it was one of the highest rated drama series of the decade. At least once every show, viewers heard Joe Friday tell a female witness, just a fax, ma'am, just a fax. I can't do it like he did it. But just the facts. Well, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, has given them the facts. He says in verse 1, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are saved. In verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that fact number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Fact number two, and that he was buried. Fact number three, and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And fact number four, and that he was seen by many people. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is part of the gospel message. You can't just have Jesus Christ dying on the cross. It would, really wouldn't do any good if he just died on the cross the good news is that he rose again from the grave. The, the word gospel in Greek is euangelion, and it means the good news. It wouldn't be very good news if he just died. He would be just like any other martyr, religious martyr, or some political hero dying for a cause. And that's good, but it's not good news for us. He's just dead. But he, God, became man died and rose again. That's what makes it different. That is the good news. You see, it is part of the gospel message. It's necessary for salvation. You have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in order to be saved. Paul says, this is what we preached. That's what you believed. That's where you stand. And that is how you are saved. You see, this gospel, this resurrection was also proved by 
his many appearances in verses 5 through 8, Paul just lists some of them. He doesn't list the women that we find saw his resurrection, saw his resurrected body on uh, that first Sunday morning. But he does give us some. First of all, it says in verse 5 that he was seen, Jesus in his resurrection glory was seen by Cephas, which is Peter. Imagine Peter who denied the Lord there on the night, that terrible night he was arrested. Three times he denied the Lord. And then there was the meeting by the... And then as soon as he died, he made a special appointment to go to Peter himself. I don't... The the scripture doesn't tell us exactly how that came about, but he saw Peter. Also, he was seen by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. In other words, Jesus appeared to a group of his followers that were over 500 people there. It was in a big crowd, a big crowd. They all saw him. They all got to touch him. They all got to communicate with him. And Peter, or Paul says to the Corinthians, if you don't believe me, just go ask him. I can give you their addresses and you can use GPS and go to their street and you can talk to them and have an interview. You can even have 2020 or Dateline interview these people. Did you see him? Yes, I saw him. And you could prove the fact. You see, the Corinthians, it was, it was current news. This was an ancient history. You could ask the witnesses. They're still alive. After that, verse 7, he was seen by James. You know who James is, don't you? James was a half-brother of Jesus, and all during the life of Jesus, he was a skeptic. He didn't believe him. He didn't believe Mary when Mary told the family about it. Didn't believe Joseph. Didn't believe Jesus. Even though he would do miracles, he didn't believe that he was a Messiah, the Son of God. So what did Jesus do? He went to his big brother and appeared to him because he knew he died and now he's alive. And you know what James did? Changed James's life. He became a pillar of the church. And God even used Jesus' little half-brother to write a book in the Bible. Changed James's life completely by seeing that. After that, he was seen by all the apostles. And then verse 8, Paul writes, Last of all, he was seen by me. As one born out of due time. You know, Paul was not only a skeptic, he hated Jesus. It changed his life. As a matter of fact, Paul was on the road to Damascus on his way to arrest more followers of Jesus Christ. He didn't believe, well, he knew that he was alive, he knew that he lived. But he didn't believe he was the Messiah, and he certainly didn't believe he rose from the grave. So a blinding light came from heaven, and a voice paralyzed Paul, blinded him, and he fell to the ground. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice from heaven says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Why are you persecuting me, meaning my church, my body. And Paul said, Lord, 
He believed in Jesus Christ, changed his whole world. From being a persecutor, he became a preacher. From being a foe of Jesus, he became a friend of Jesus. Rather than destroying the cause of Christ, he became devoted to the cause of Christ. Paul would tell these Corinthians, hey, you know me. I was a hater, and God, by his grace, made me one of the apostles and rocked my world, turned me 180 degrees. The facts of the resurrection are undeniable. It is one of history's most proven facts. But let's look also, as Paul continues to write, at the importance of the resurrection in verses 12 through 19. And Paul, like an attorney, uses logic. And he says, if there is no resurrection, some of the believers in Corinth did not believe in the resurrection of the body. And perhaps they were influenced by the Greek culture or false teachers. So Paul gives them an undeniable line of reasoning, and starting in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. It's inseparably linked. How many of you have ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? You ever heard of him, a radio uh, Bible teacher, through the Bible in five years, and I used to listen to him all the time. When he was alive, a woman wrote to J. Vernon McGee and says, Our preacher back home at church said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross, and the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? McGee replied, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip (laughs) with 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put put him in an airless tomb for three days and see what happens. (laughs) There's no possibility that Jesus just swooned on the cross He died and rose again. If Christ has not been raised, and then Paul gives a line of argument, notice what he says there. First of all, our preaching is in vain. Why am I standing up here yelling my head off? Why am I telling you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why do we send missionaries all around the world? Why do we fund them and tell them that, why don't we just... Give them uh, food and said, feed the people if there's no resurrection of the dead. Paul said, our preaching is vain, but also our faith is in vain. It's just a story. It's not real. What you believe in is just a figment of your imagination if Christ has not been raised. What happened as a result of the resurrection is unprecedented in human history. In the span of a few hundred years, a small band of seemingly insignificant believers succeeded in turning an entire empire upside down. As he has been well said, they faced the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane, and the fires of a thousand deaths because they were utterly convinced that they, like their master, would one day rise from the grave in glorified, resurrected bodies. Paul said... If Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain, and we are 
liars. <laughs> Paul says, I'm a liar. We're just lying to people and telling them to believe in something that wasn't true. And really, why would the early disciples, all those early 12, you know, Peter and uh, Paul and all of them, die for a lie? If they knew that Jesus was not alive, if they did not see him, and if they were just lying about it, when they were about ready to cut off your head, says, uh, are you really telling the truth? Uh, 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 if it wasn't the truth, you would spill the beans. What purpose is there to lie when they've got uh, ready to behead you or crucify you or burn you or destroy you and your families? None of them recanted. They stood by. They were not liars. If Christ had not risen from the grave, Paul says, we are still in our sins. You still Bear the guilt of your sins. All of us do. They've not been washed away. We are found guilty and one day we will face the judge of all the earth because we have not been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection makes it stick. The fact that our sins have been washed away. Also, if Christ had not been risen from the grave, dead believers are still in their graves. They've perished. Your loved ones that you've buried, you put them in the ground or you cremated them or maybe all of those loved ones that died at sea or wherever their body is, if, if Christ had not been raised, they're still there and they're not going anywhere. You'll never see them again. But the hope of the resurrection proves that wrong. Paul said, if Christ had not been risen from the dead of all people, we are the most miserable. The conclusion is obvious. Why be a Christian if we only have suffering in this life and no future glory to anticipate? The resurrection is, is not just important, it is of first importance because all that we believe hinges on the resurrection. Everything. We would just be most miserable. I read that Winston Churchill chose to believe. In fact, he even arranged his own funeral. There were stately hymns sung in St. Paul's Cathedral. And an impressive liturgy. When they said the benediction, he had arranged for a bugler in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral on one side... To play taps, the universal sign that the day is over. But when that was finished, there was a long pause, and then another bugler on the other side played Reveille, the signal of a new day beginning. It was Churchill's way of communicating that while we say good night here, it's good morning up there. There is a resurrection. It is a fact, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. It is important. But notice as Paul teaches us in verses 20 and following, the order of the resurrections. I'm going to read verses 20 to 23. But now Christ is risen from the dead. He gets off of the hypothetical and he says, this is true. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, Paul is getting down to the problem here. The, the Corinthians didn't believe. They believed in the resurrection of Christ, but they didn't believe in the physical resurrection of their own bodies. 
Paul says, since Christ is risen from the dead, he's become the first fruits of all of those who've fallen asleep. For since by man, one man, Adam, came death, by man, one man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. First of all, notice the two representatives in verse 20 and verse 22. Christ is the first fruit, and Adam is also. Adam represents death. He was the first man. And of course, when Adam sinned, all humanity were there partaking of that sin. He is our federal head. He was the one that did that. And all mankind fell, sinned, and death came upon the whole human race because of that one man. But there is the second man, and that is Christ. Because of Christ, all humanity can have life. The first fruits, Christ is the first fruits. Now, there's three phases of resurrection. Verse 23, it says this, <clears throat> but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruit. Jesus was the first one to experience that resurrection. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. He's, he's addressing these Corinthians and saying, hey, you believe that Jesus died? That's the first fruit. But wait, there's going to be a day when Christ comes back that he is going to resurrect our dead bodies. At the rapture, we will enjoy that resurrection. It says in verses 51 to 53, it says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not going to all continue to sleep in the ground, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. <clears throat> when Christ comes back, the dead is going to go first. Their bodies are going to be resurrected from wherever that decomposing corpse is. It might be scattered all over the world, but God is going to put those bodies back together, reunite it with our soul, which is with the Lord when we die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Our real person is with the Lord. But there, when the rapture comes, there's going to be a resurrection of the church age believers, and we're going to be glorified. The dead ones are going to get a new body. We're going to get a renewed body, and we'll be with the Lord forever. That's the second phase. And then there's a third uh, phase of the resurrection, and that is when the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints are resurrected after the tribulation in verse 24. It talks about that. Then there'll be a thousand-year reign of Christ, and the final enemy will be destroyed, and the future kingdom will be established. As Paul sums up the resurrection teaching. But in verses 29 to 34, he teaches us something else. There is moral value in the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ should teach us some important things. And the first moral value is for baptism in verse 29. Now, this is a confusing verse, so let me try to explain what I understand this. Otherwise, in other words, if the resurrection is not true, and if dead believers 
are, are not going to be brought back. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? That's caused a lot of confusion among believers. And, and I know a lot of, uh, even a, a cult uh, actually has a people that are, they get a, a genealogy list, they get a list from the phone book and they, they baptize, they get baptized for that person in there. And that's not what I believe it's teaching here. What this is simply teaching, the praise probably means baptized... New people getting saved, and they get baptized to take the place of those who have already died. In other words, if there's no resurrection, why bother to witness? Why bother to win others to Christ? Why reach sinners who are then baptized to take the place of those who have died? If the Christian life is only a dead-end street, just get off of it, Paul was saying. Also, another moral value is it's worth it to risk our lives. Paul said, hypothetically, in verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why risk our lives? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Jesus Christ, that I die daily. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why am I putting my life at stake? in preaching to people that are throwing things at me, that are trying to kill me. Why did I just keep my mouth shut if this is not true? Just eat. Eat all you want. Enjoy life. Suck all the marrow out of life and drink yourself silly because tomorrow we're going to die. You know, that's the philosophy of the world, isn't it? That's what they do. They just eat and drink. They just take up space. They have fun. They just soak up the most pleasures and the most bucket list activities of life because then you die and there's no more. The Christian life is so much different. It's more than just eating. It's more than just enjoying the pleasures of this life. It's about eternity. Jesus Christ is alive. It's a motivation to live for the future. It's also a motivation for a holy living. Paul closes in verse 34. It says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ should give us a motive to live a holy life because one day it's going to be worth it all. As we come away from this passage, I'd like to share three takeaways. First of all, because Jesus died, all of our sins are washed away. I'm so glad. Aren't you? Boy, Every one of us. We have enough guilt by just being born into this world. We have Adam's guilt transferred to the human race. But you and I know that we've been wicked. There's things in your life, if you had to, if they'd find out about. <laughs> I, I know one person was scared to death when he got an anonymous phone call. And the voice on the other said, all is discovered. Run. <laughs> he got out of town. <laughs> have no idea what it was for, but there must have been something I've done. Imagine that. If you had to face a holy God because of your sin, but they've all been washed away because of the death of Christ. Because Jesus rose, one day we will rise again too. Oh, that's good. 
That's good. I, I, somebody showed me a picture of a, of a crippled boy's monument at a, at a tombstone. It was a boy that was leaving his wheelchair and he was reaching up to heaven. One day that's you. That's me. All of us will have that resurrection and be with the Lord. And because Jesus is alive, we have hope. We have a reason to live. On February 27th, 1991, during the Desert Storm War, a woman by the name of Ruth Dillow received the worst call of her life. Her son, Clayton Carpenter, private first class, had stepped on a landmine and was dead. For the next three days, she grieved. No one could comfort her. On the third day after receiving the terrible news, the phone rang again. On the other end of the phone, there was a voice that said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. At first, she thought it was a cruel joke, but as the conversation continued, she realized it was her son. Later, she laughed and cried and rejoiced because what seemed to be a hopeless situation turned out to be the greatest day of her life. And that's what good news from a graveyard can do for you and me when our faith is in Jesus. The Son is alive. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we live with a fact of Jesus' resurrection from the grave and that he's alive right now. Many of your people here today have settled that question a long time ago. They have believed and have received that living Savior in their heart. Father, I do pray that if there is someone here today that have never made the resurrection permanent, never made it personal. They've never asked Jesus to be their own Savior, not just the one that they come to church on Easter to sing about, but the one that lives in their heart every day of the year. I pray, God, you would speak to that heart today. May they invite Jesus, the living Savior, into their own heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.